Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by NeuroWrite West. I'm Viet Nguyen. Today our guest is Nicholas Schiff, the Gerald B. Katz Professor of Neurology and Neuroscience in the Field Family Brain and Mind Research Institute at Weill Cornell Medical College, where he serves as Professor of Neuroscience, Neurology, and Public Health. He also co-directs CASPI, the Consortium for the Advanced Study of Brain Injury. Today we'll be speaking with him about deep brain stimulation in the thalamus to help cognition following brain injury. All this and more, coming up. We're here with Nicholas Schiff from Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City. Thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Schiff. A pleasure. Let's start with your background. Where did you grow up and were you interested in science as a kid? So I grew up in the University of Chicago. I uh, was very interested in science. I was surrounded by scientists my whole life growing up there, mostly physicists because that was kind of what most of the people seemed to do at the University of Chicago. Uh, and that certainly got me started in, 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 my, in my interest in science. What did you study as a Stanford undergraduate? Uh, my Stanford undergraduate major was in the history and philosophy of science. And I focused my senior thesis work on the problems of brain mechanisms underlying consciousness. And I first got my interest in the area of the central thalamus and its role in consciousness through my work on that project. I um, was able to get a grant through Stanford. I don't know if they still have them. They, at the time, they had something called the Golden Grant. And it led me to fly to the Montreal Neurological Institute in Canada, where the original brain stimulation work by Wilder Penfield was done. And I got to interview people who had worked with Dr. Penfield, review all of his manuscripts and his correspondence with neuroscientists and doctors at the time. And I had one very formative interview with a famous neurosurgeon there named Theodore Rasmussen. And Rasmussen and Penfield had worked out what is known to every neuroscience student now, the motor homunculus, the little man on the motor strip that has the larger, or the sensory homunculus and the larger uh, lips and uh, hands and fingertips. And Dr. Rasmussen was interested in the problem of consciousness and he, he heard what I was looking at and thinking about and he said, well, look, you know, you have to understand the dominant paradigm in neuroscience for 25 years centered around something that Penfield and our co-workers called the centroencephalic hypothesis. And it focused on the role of these neurons within the central thalamus and how they played a role in overall brain dynamics. And I became very interested and started following that lead. And it was pretty much the work that led me to decide to become a doctor, go to medical school, and actually choose neurology. So you didn't enter Stanford with the thought that you would become a doctor already? No. Well, it's, a, I think, a fair question. I entered Stanford with the idea that that might be a good career. My father was a physician. But I actually I started Stanford with an interest in developing a very strong humanities training. And I was in the Structured Liberal Education Program, which is a residence-based humanities program that required about two to 3,000 pages of reading a week and 12 hours of <laughs> residential uh, lecture and was great, and I loved it, and it was during that period of time that I met my under undergraduate advisor, who was a theoretical physicist who'd done a PhD in both theoretical physics and in history of physics. And I, and when I met him, Peter Gallison, he's now the university professor at Harvard, or the Pellegrino professor or something like that. He, um, 
he 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 re, he sort of represented an embodiment of having brought all this stuff together. And I I actually initially thought that I might end up doing history and philosophy of uh, neuroscience, but then I decided I actually wanted to solve these problems that I was just learning about. Do neuroscience itself. That's right. You attended medical school at Cornell and neurology residency at New York Hospital. What factors led you to choose a career in neurology and specifically the neuroscience of consciousness? Well, so going back, I I was thinking about this very heavily in the last two years of my undergraduate work at Stanford. And uh, one of the one of the conversations, the other conversations I had when I was in Montreal was with the director of the institute, uh, William Findell, who was a neurosurgeon. And uh, he said to me, you know, you should, if you want to be a neurologist, because I'd already sort of sorted out that neurology would give me more opportunity to do the kind of bench research that I was interested in, the neurosurgery. Um, and I was interested in observational work. I really wanted to spend a lot of time observing people. He said, there's only one neurologist in the world who's still seriously interested in the science of consciousness. His name is Fred Plum, and he's at Cornell. And that was in the back of my mind. It wasn't the determining factor that led me to Cornell Medical School. But I did go there, and I did meet Fred Plum, and he helped me uh, pick a, a excellent scientific mentor, John Victor, when I was there. And I, I got increasingly interested in what is called systems neurophysiology, which is the bringing together of quantitative mathematical models, physiologic measurement, and sort of conceptual analysis of the brain from, from that point of view, and that's what I focused on. And then you revised Dr. Plum's book. Well, then eventually I became... I became a neurology resident, and I became chief resident with Dr. Plum. And in, 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 in presenting to Dr. Plum my research project to do brain stimulation in the central thalamus, he invited me to join him on imaging studies in uh, vegetative state and disorders of consciousness. And that led my uh, career toward the expertise to be a co-editor of the uh, Stupor and Coma volume. That's right. That's great. In 2007, you published a pivotal single-subject study in Nature involving a 38-year-old man in a six-year-long minimally conscious state, secondary to severe traumatic brain injury. Studying this one minimally conscious patient for well over a year, you correlated deep brain stimulation in the central thalamus with improved performance across various psychometrics, including memory, attention, verbal fluency, semantic retrieval, and sensory motor integration. Can you comment on the design and the logistics of this study? How did you get it to actually work and show meaningful results? So we thought very long and hard about the mechanics of this study. And one of the we – we had several hurdles that we knew that we were going to have to overcome in making this demonstration. One, one of the hurdles was that a prior 50-patient study had been done, a multi-center, multi-center study – in France, Japan, and in the United States at San Francisco General Hospital that included famously Terry Schiavo as one of its participants had been done with deep brain stimulation and failed, but it was done in the vegetative state. And one of our biggest problems was making people understand that minimally conscious state and vegetative state were not just conceptually distinct, but anatomically and physiologically distinct. And we made sure that we had a primary outcome measure that had been validated psychometrically that had known properties. That was the coma recovery scale. We knew from other work that had been published uh, how much data we would need to acquire and for how long to do a power analysis to be able to figure out what kind of effect size we would need to show that would be meaningful. And we knew that we were going to face other concerns about causality so that we needed to design a study that was blinded, that had a 
enough periods of on and off stimulation so that if there were linear trends that we would wash them out or that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be confounded by the uh, start on or start off in a one or two cycle design. We also were aware that many studies, either of brain stimulation or of explants or other um, manipulations of brain tissue had shown acute effects or early stage effects from operations themselves, lesioning or stimulatory effects of placing electrodes. And so we deliberately designed our studies so that we would have a factor of two against the longest known and measured time scale of any biological process that could possibly confound it. And all and all in every one of these pieces came up in the prosecution of the review and the publication of the study, but also gave us tremendous certainty about what we were able to see and measure and, and when it was causal. Biological processes such as what? Well, so uh, there was a famous study of adrenal grafts that was uh, published in the New England Journal that we knew would be raised in review and was raised in review where uh, simply engrafting tissue in the brain may have had an effect on growth factors. Gene expression effects uh, were another uh, local tissue uh, changes. Things on 48-hour, 7-day, and 14-day time courses had been measured and in principle could have played a role had we not waited enough time. But we waited 60 days before turning on, and we also designed a study that would have a, a time history of the deep brain stimulation on and off over a very long time period, a six-month, 30-day blinded on-off crossover uh, trial that would unambiguously show us uh, causally linked uh, DBS effects if they were present. And when we had studies in some of the patients subsequently where they were not present, they unambiguously showed us without a doubt that there was no measurable effect. You touched on this a little bit, but what misconceptions about your work and the minimally conscious state in this vulnerable patient population in general do you think are important for the public to understand better? Well, there's so many, but I think the the first thing is this, that there has to be a precision in how we talk about work in this area and how we communicate it and it, hopefully over time an education process to get people to have a model in their head that is uh, better aligned with what all of this means. So, for example, and it's not so much related to the brain stimulation aspect of our work, but just in the diagnostic categorization of patients, whether they're in vegetative state, minimally conscious state, or in other levels of recovery from disorders of consciousness, there's a lot of uh, media work, that, a lot of media coverage that will say things like, patient in, in vegetative state is able to play tennis. So those are effectively contradictions. And th what they really are saying is that there's a subset of patients who appear to be in vegetative state or maybe appear to be in minimally conscious state with very limited behavioral response who retain high levels of cognitive function and therefore are neither vegetative or in this low level of minimally conscious state most likely. But at the present, we need to develop tools that will help us avoid misdiagnosis. And this, this is what's happened historically in all areas like this. So brain death is a great example. You know, there's, and this has also been confounded recently in the news, and it's the kind of thing that leads to a lot of public misconception. So brain death is an unambiguous diagnosis and could be made 100% of the time always if ancillary testing were done. But the way medicine has evolved to be practical is to set up uh, clinical exams with a limited number of ancillary tests to avoid misdiagnosis. 
in vegetative state, minimally conscious state, and other disorders of consciousness, we haven't evolved that practice. We're still relying entirely on behavioral assessments. And part of really what's going on in that, that, that space is just that the precision of this diagnostic evaluation is, is not where it needs to be, and eventually we'll get better. That's one misconception. The other issue is that people have to understand that demonstration of the effects that we had in this one subject to date need you know much more work to understand anything about how they might get generalized for criteria so that other people might respond. To be sure, we have every reason to believe this isn't the only person in the world who will respond to brain stimulation, but there's quite a bit of work that will need to be done to figure out criteria for how to select patients on average in medical centers who might benefit for therapy like this and uh, it be, for it to become a therapy. It's, it's not a therapy, it's a result at this point in one person. But what really will need to be done is that we have to fund it and, and get um, sufficient resources to do larger studies. And at present, that's actually not been possible. Do you think we need to revise the criteria and terminology for how we classify these patients? It's, it's, it's in a process of being iteratively revised uh, by people working in this area right now. And piece by piece, that's coming together. And I think, I think that's, that's the natural evolution. It's, there's a lot more splitting that's uh, going to occur now. The lumping. And then we'll need a way to communicate those different levels to the public and to families. Of, and of to our patients. colleagues. Yes. You know, I mean, uh, here, here's a great example of why we really are very far behind. There is no ICD code for minimally conscious state. So in most, con- most hospitals in this country, if somebody recognizes that a person is conscious, they don't have a choice. They can just say they're vegetative or they can find some broad category to label them. And there's no way to track the patients who are conscious demographically. So leading out from that, what diagnostic advances and neuromodulation strategies do you picture for the future care of these patients with disorders of consciousness? So I, I, see, I see this area as having two central problems, and uh, one of them is related to diagnostic advances and the other is related to neuromodulation strategies. So the, um, the biggest problem, the, the widest problem, is understanding the mechanism of recovery and how we can accelerate, optimize, or initiate the recovery process in patients who've had severe brain injury. And we know now that the process itself spontaneously can continue for very long periods of time. And in traumatic brain injury, the data show that if you have a disorder of consciousness, you can continue to have meaningful improvements at two- and five-year intervals. So we know that there's a mechanism underneath the recovery that probably could be supported and accelerated and optimized, and characterizing the biology of how to do that, I think, is is going to be a, a large part of, um, of what neuromodulation and uh, sort of tracking of the recovery uh, through diagnostics will, will bring over the near term. The other major diagnostic piece relates to what is now very clear as a sub-problem, but a, a crucially important sub-problem in this field, and that's that this recovery process can go on almost to it or potentially to its complete natural recovery of cognitive uh, sapient intelligent awareness without any evidence at the bedside that the person has changed at all. And we need to develop not just algorithms to make sure that people get regular reassessments and uh, know when that risk is getting greater and greater that they're inside but not recognized. We also have to start to work toward advances that will be more interventional to help the people we have identified as being in that condition have some way of communicating and getting out. And 
and in all, across all the groups working in the world, this is increasingly obvious that this is a problem that's real. We've had seven patients out of almost 50 who fit into this category, and each time we find one, their urgency to figure out how to do something about it seems to just get higher. So those are the, those are the two general problems, and um, there's a lot of work to do here. So it's an exciting time, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, there's a very long way to go. We usually end the interview with a few rapid-fire questions that are not on your sheet. Fine. So here you go. If you could speak to yourself as a medical student, what advice would you give? <laughs> okay. What if I speak to myself as a medical student? The advice I gave myself, which was uh, make sure I had enough time to think about what I really wanted to do before the conveyor belt of medical school dumped me at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Would you ride in a self-driving car or taxi, or do you prefer your drivers fully conscious? Fully conscious. <laughs> Is that fast enough? Yes. <laughs> Any uh, care to elaborate? Oh, I, you know, we've evolved consciousness so that we can handle complexity of decision-making. Why would I want to rely on something that would obviously be less effective to take charge of my life and its safety? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Uh, last question, C-3PO, Big Hero 6, Data from the Enterprise, and Cylons. How far are we... What was the last one? Cylons, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Okay. Right. Mm. Anyway, how far are we from being able to fully emulate human consciousness in the digital realm? Oh, well, I mean, you know, that's obviously not my area of expertise, but uh, I, I guess the question is... Uh, What's a real example that's even trying to do it halfway close? I can't, I can't think of a good one. Um, but those are all fakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe the autocomplete on our phones. Yeah, but if Siri is a, is, is a you know, first step, it's not too impressive. Right. <laughs> okay, I think uh, we're all set. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Lawrence Studer, developmental biologist and director of the Center for Stem Cell Biology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, David Lipton, Ada Yee, Andrew Gundren, and myself, Viet Nguyen. Adam Fuschel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm Viet Nguyen.